Welcome to Infinite Conversations, a podcast about art and life. My name is Marco V. Morelli, and my guest this episode is the philosopher Bonita Roy. The question we're exploring is, how can organizations support our authentic and meaningful engagement in work we actually care about? How can we value openness, participation, reputation, legitimacy, connectivity, and abundance in the way we work together? How can we organize in ways that liberate rather than stifle our creative spirit? Bonita calls this kind of organization an Open Participatory Organization, or OPO, and her manifesto is the point of departure for our talk, which morphs into an enacted example of the kind of work Benita does. It had me rethinking the assumptions I came into the conversation with in real time. But before we get to that, a note on the self-organization of this podcast. I wanted to make it possible for you to hear Benita's manifesto if you haven't already read it. So part one of the audio is Benita reading her piece aloud. Of course, if you've read the manifesto, you can skip this part, but personally, I found that listening gave me another way of absorbing her ideas. Part two is my actual conversation with Benita, and part three, which will be released separately, is sort of a bonus. My podcasting collaborator, Ali Rabinovich, steps out from behind the scenes to ask Benita more of a personal question. You'll get to hear about how the OPO idea came into the world through Benita's lived experience and struggles, and how she opted in to her commitment to this work. About Benita. She's a philosopher, an author, and also the founder of Alderlore, a 501c3 nonprofit whose programs support the transformation of education, business, and governance for a more equitable society and a thriving planet. Her new initiative is called App, APP Associates, and it's through this that she's sharing and modeling her work. The manifesto is published on medium.com, where you'll find it under her user profile, at Bonita Roy, B-O-N-N-I-T-T-A-R-O-Y. All these links will be on the episode page on infiniteconversations.fm. That's also where you can support this podcast with a one-time or monthly donation and help us build a creative gift economy for social poetics and planetary thought. And it's where you can join the conversation. Just follow the button to the topic on the Infinite Conversations forum. That said, let's do this. Here's Bonita Roy. On February 11th through 13th, 2001, at the Lodge at Snowbird Ski Resort in the Wasatch Mountains of Utah, 17 people met to talk, ski, relax, and try to find common ground. Thus begins the story of how the Agile Manifesto came to be. In this brief history, the authors write, but while the manifesto provides some specific ideas, there is a deeper theme that drives many, but not all, to be sure, members of this alliance. Today, we have agile teams working inside conventionally tiered organizations, which imposes multiple constraints on what is possible. 
Now it is up to us to write in more explicit terms about the deeper themes that are operating in our collective imagination, themes that have to do with new forms of our organizational life, which bust through those constraints. In a previous post, I introduced an open architecture for self-organization that is based on principles of open participation. These principles reflect a new zeitgeist that is already transforming our workplaces. We are reinventing what it means to participate by experimenting with self-organizing teams that continually renew their passion, ignite their enthusiasm, and activate their imagination in collaborative ways of working together. While the troubling economy puts increasing pressures on organizations to change, the key influences of power in the workplace are being overturned by new generations of people who value autonomy and connection over ambition and status. This is the birth of the new economy, taking place in the transformation of the social fabric at the heart of our organizations. We are seeing social, economic, and governance being transformed in the loci of production, where smart machines and social media are accelerating this transformation. This new zeitgeist is less interested in the old social influences of authority and social obligation and more concerned with demonstrable legitimacy and guaranteeing universal access to the common wealth. Today, we are more interested in opt-in out ways of participation than with committed and consistent roles. We are empowered by communities of practice and peer-to-peer -peer connectivity rather than social status and statutory reputation. We are a generation exploring real abundance in nature and ingenuity that flows from the human spirit when it is set free. This shift in attitude signals a reckoning with old ways of power, which instrumentalizes the earth and institutionalizes and bureaucratizes human activity. Just how far we have already shifted can be seen by contrast with one of the most respected studies ever conducted on organizational life. In his book, Influence and the Psychology of Persuasion, which was published in 1984, Robert Cialdini presented his findings on the six principles of social influence that were operating in the workplace. One, reciprocity. People tend to return a favor, thus the free samples in marketing. Two, commitment and consistency. If people commit orally or in writing to an idea or goal, they are more likely to honor that commitment because of establishing that idea or goal as being congruent with their self-image. Three, social proof. People will do things that they see other people are doing. Four, authority. People will tend to obey authority figures even if they are asked to perform objectionable acts. Five, liking. People are easily persuaded by other people they like. And six, scarcity. Perceived scarcity will generate demand. 
if you are listening to this, chances you recognize how these principles actually operate and constrain the everyday activities of organizational life and obstruct the deeper possibilities of human interaction. Just hearing them gives you the heebie-jeebies. The heebie-jeebies is your body telling you that something new is already playing in your imagination. We are somehow living forward into the future of work, yet we still have to contend with the social tactics and power structures operating in most workplaces. The purpose of a manifesto is to manifest by naming in order to make explicit what is already emerging, to speak with the voice of the people we are already becoming. In keeping with the spirit and style of the Agile Manifesto, I am proposing this as a manifesto for open participatory organizations. The OPO Manifesto. One, access over reciprocity. Two, Participation over commitment and consistency. Three, reputation over social proof. Four, legitimacy over authority. Five, connectivity over liking. And six, abundance over scarcity. The first principle, access over reciprocity. We don't want tit-for-tat transactions that accumulate social obligation, which is merely another form of debt. We want open, universal access to the social network to be able to receive from it whenever we have a relevant need and to contribute to it whenever we have a gift or skill to give. We are receiving upon need and paying it forward. This free giveaway and takeaway is constructing a new commonwealth that depends upon opening new portals of universal access to the internet, to information, education, and training. Universal access in the workplace means deploying an open communication system where information is stored in the cloud and where it can be pulled into your inbox or interface when you need it or just when you are surfing for serendipitous connections. It means that information is made available to everyone including adequate transparency around salaries, profits, and performance. It means that everyone has access to the technology and knowledge base of the organization to fulfill their personal or professional needs and interests. It means universal access to personal space, time needed for well-being and family, including opportunities to learn new skills, time off to adventure and explore, or time needed to rest and heal. Second principle, participation over commitment and consistency. We live in the fluidity of global time, the flux and flow of attention span, the overlap of work and play. Every day it becomes harder to pre-plan and commit and easier to join in and participate at the last minute. We are becoming more spontaneous and improvisational. People love the option of dropping in, of discovering, discovering something serendipitously or through synchronous events. We love interruption of all sorts, from flash mobs to selfies. But then we can also suddenly drop out and offline and disappear from sight. No one will mind. We will be back. 
If peer-to-peer -peer denotes parity, then it is not the same as participation, which allows for parity as an option, but rejects it as a given. Participation is concerned with equality, where the meaning of equality excludes parity as a given, but includes values such as equal opportunity and unconditional regard of the personhood of all individuals. Participation is a realist attitude, not an idealist position, which means it involves and includes, rather than claiming to exclude, the asymmetrical relationships between people with respect to power, need, experience, identity, and skill. We can also talk about open participation and authentic participation, terms which point to broader and deeper means of participation. Authentic participation perfects work by integrating personhood with professionalism, aligning personal values with collective aspirations. Participation opens toward a broader scope of possibility in relationship, such that more and more of reality is allowed in and appreciated with the kind of loving acceptance and equanimity we call unconditional regard. Participation deepens in authenticity as it becomes more spontaneous, which means we let go of prejudgment or prejudice of any kind of strategizing orientation toward what might happen. Open and authentic is a state of mutual interplay allowing everything as self or as other to participate in the co-creation of emergent experience. In the workplace, this means actively and consciously participating in the ongoing interplay of intention, interaction, and identity. In a field of participation, where people are continuously opting in and opting out according to shifting needs, conditions, and relationships across a spectrum of values with obligation and necessity at one end and spontaneity and improvisation at the other. In the workplace, obligation and necessity create patterns of stability, which comes with the sense of safety, whereas spontaneity and improvisation are the drivers of novelty, innovation, and transformation and come with the taste of risk and surprise. The third principle is reputation. The shift from social proof to reputation continues to grow in importance and will have dramatic consequences for the emergence of a participatory culture. In the Reputation Society, Craig Newmark writes, by the end of the decade, power and influence will have shifted largely to those people with the best reputations and trust networks and away from people with money and nominal power. Reputation differs from social proof in the kinds of networks and relationships that maintain them. Social proof is maintained by institutional methods of validation, such as licenses, accreditation, official standards, etc. These methods aggregate regulatory power into the hands of the few, and therefore social proof comes to represent the value set of the privileged and those closest to central power. Reputation, on the other hand, is sourced from the crowd 
through in the many, many ways we like, upvote or downvote, and as we rate, review, recommend, and share what is presented or offered to us. Already today, reputation affects what we purchase and where we purchase from. In other words, reputation is becoming a major driver of resource allocation, steering goods, services, energy, and money in some directions rather than others. Reputation is becoming a powerful, distributed decision-making process in society, turning representational forms of democratic decision-making processes into participatory ones. As evaluative processes become more distributed, reputations will come to reflect the spectra of values in the rich and diverse ecology of human interests that emerge through the complex processes of human interaction. The fourth principle is legitimacy. Legitimacy is earned over and over again through adequate participation in the work, field, or discipline involved. Whereas authority is associated with expertise, legitimacy is associated with mastery. Because authority is granted by the few who hold and preserve the existing power structures, it depends upon the recommendations of experts who abstract from the local and particular elements of experience to come up with a generalized whole which functions as an ideological basis for evaluation by authorities. As societies become more stratified and complex, then authority becomes more and more an outcome of ideology and theory and less and less a measure of praxis. This distinction between expert authority and legitimate mastery is important for the future of work. It helps explain why a commission of experts is likely to become embroiled in endless argument and debate since theories and ideologies are endlessly incommensurable. What any particular expert abstracts from the local in particular, what they leave behind, itself depends upon the many different identities, intentions, and interactions that are constantly being negotiated among other experts. The problem with evaluative discourse that depends upon experts is that the identities, intentions, and interactions among the experts are not part of the very work that they are supposed to be evaluating. Whereas expert interactions happen elsewhere, the interactions that mastery depends upon happen in the very places and in the actual experiences which is relevant to evaluative discourse. Mastery is always an outcome of the skills, adequate participation, and practical judgment that are involved in the many locations and context-sensitive interactions of a particular discipline or field of work and therefore is a legitimate source of evaluative discourse. The fifth principle is connectivity over liking. The participatory attitude is one of radical inclusion. Imagine all the people in the world we are connected with 
and contrast this with the subset of people we know on a personal basis, people we have come to like in real life. Our attention is being broadly cast over myriad connections and relationships, allowing us to engage with opinions and experiences from people we might find it hard to actually like. Liking is probably the quality of human relationship that is most limited by the Dunbar number, whereas the number of potential connections is unlimited. In 1929, Frigge's Corinthi theorized there were only six degrees of separation between any one person and any other person in the world. In a recent post, Facebook announced that the average degree of separation between its members had dropped from 4.74 in 2011 to 3.57 today. Just think about that a bit. You are closer than ever to the people you admire, the celebrities you adore, and the rich, famous, wealthy, and powerful people you esteem. You are also closer than ever to the people you fear, rival, loathe, as well as possibly those you deeply and passionately hate. It is always a shock when someone we know, someone from our neighborhood or workplace, turns out to be a violent offender. Today, every violent offender is more probably than not only three or four degrees of separation from you. And yet, the participatory attitude is not one that is particularly interested in this kind of thinking. Rather, it emphasizes that broadly shared connectivity represents a new common wealth and serves us as an emergent possibility space for freely acting humans. As we continue to become more connected, we will struggle with making sense of how close we really are to each other. Our habitual ways of reacting with anxiety, distrust, and fear will be intensified until we adapt and learn how to make new meaning of our connectivity and interdependency. We will come to see that we really need each other, that everyone needs everyone else, and realize how much more significant this is than who we like. And the last principle is abundance instead of scarcity. The participatory attitude is one of abundance, which recognizes the tremendous wealth in human interconnection, as well as our interconnection with the natural world. We see that the living world is constituted by interconnection and relationships, that all growth, development, and evolution is predicated on the richly textured and deeply interwoven mutuality of all beings, human and non-human. We have come to realize that scarcity is a false construct maintained by societies that have organized themselves to benefit the few at the expense of the many. We have begun to see that the tension between the individual and the collective is a false dilemma as the individual emerges from the many, many local interactions and relationships which we call the collective. And the collective emerges from the many, many local interactions between what we call individuals.
Abundance doesn't mean having more and more things at our disposal. Abundance refers to the very possibility of connecting and relating. Atoms connect to each other and create elements. Mass relates to mass and creates the fabric of space-time. Persons connect and engage each other, interrelate and co-create the social fabric. A person, said the philosopher Alfred North Whitehead, is a society of cells. Animals and plants, rivers and tides, sunlight and atmosphere, relationships upon myriad relationships from which emerges the participatory ecology we call Earth. Abundance is all about remembering we are born of relationship, and as interconnected participants, we co-create our future through continuously shifting patterns of connecting and relating. A manifesto is a declaration intended to reveal our past actions in order to clear the way for our forthcoming actions. A manifesto is an announcement of our readiness to act in these new ways. It is a sign of a tipping point in our collective imagination. This manifesto of open participation, I believe, is declaring the future where our organizations have transformed from being merely instruments of capital production to being loci of social and economic experiments, steering us toward more open and participatory forms of democracy by exploring new forms of organizational life. I was wondering who I talked to this week, and I saw your manifesto pop up on Facebook, and I took a quick look at it, and I'm like, I want to talk to Bonnie. Uh, and and then it just so happened that you were going to be on the Hangout the other night, and uh, so it all kind of worked out as this this cluster of conversation that that we're having. And I I really, you know, one I I really liked. Uh, appreciated uh, and was thought-provoked by uh, the manifesto. Uh, two, I mean, the reasons for that are because it feels so relevant to uh, what I'm trying to do and what we're trying to do. Uh, and, you know, it's really, it just, it's cool to see the thinking happening, you know, the, the kind of theory, if you will, or the theoria, you know, that, you know, that I'm, that, I feel like sometimes I'm intuitively kind of acting on or just spontaneously like moving in certain directions or mm -hmm. relating to things in a certain way. <clears throat> and, um, and then to have sort of have that sort of a feedback loop of articulation and reflection and kind of pointing in, into particular directions and naming things. Yeah. Uh, it sort of helps to, I guess, uh, like concretize the, the, the conversation concretize the you know the, the that the actual consideration of what it is that, that yeah. we're even doing. Um, but I also understand that you wrote this in a con probably in other con you know with other contexts in mind, uh, like technology um, companies, for example. Uh, I'm, I'm 
I'm vaguely familiar with agile methodology for like project management. I don't mm -hmm. have a deep, you know, very precise understanding of how the process works. Uh, but I have a general idea that it, you know, has to do with like not having too rigid structures, being able to be flexible, doing these kind of iterative types of development where you're, mm -hmm. you know, you have like more frequent feedback loops and you're, you know, you're, you're basically just trying to go with the, the, the I guess, the dynamism of mm -hmm. the interactivity between, uh, between creative people uh, and every, you know, and all people, everybody's creative, you know, in, in that sort of process. Um, and you're kind of, you know, positioning this paper as a, maybe, I don't know what, uh, sort of an, another step beyond that agile mm -hmm. methodology. Yeah. Um, but you're also still relating it to the kind of tech community, I think, and to the, like the inter the internet you know, to to work on the internet really is like one no. of the is it's really integrated into your into this piece. Uh, and you talk about social networks, you talk about liking, you talk about access. I mean, all these terms are very internet era terms. For me, it was important to end the piece the way it was because to define a manifesto is an is about naming, not claiming. And so. It is what you said that there the zeitgeist is is already well underway, right? And you see it in many different sectors of our lives, in the social sector, economic sector, in in the the current political races. Um, and so, agile. I don't see this new way of thinking about organization as being an outcome of agile. Agile is part of the imagination that's part of this new zeitgeist. So this notion of naming, not claiming what is going on, right? That's one thing. Although, you know, naming it then has this kind of leaps the movement forward, right? Because it it's, brings it into explicit, explicit ways. Um, and then... I just want to say, but what interests me, the context that I'm most interested in, is the second phase. So, and what I mean by that is that um, while, I, while I believe the internet was not possible if people couldn't imagine it first, but now that people just use the internet, they are able to imagine new things, right? So if somebody said to me 10 years ago, like, or, you know, if somebody said, um, how do I create a spontaneously organizing network of contact, contacts? I would have no idea. But I use Facebook for two or three years, and then they have one of these apps where they show me, oh, look, you've created a spontaneous organization of contacts worldwide. I still have any idea how to do that. But the technology, the structural technology, has enabled me just by using it to do something that I have no idea how to do. So the zeitgeist is trying to name the imaginative part that's coming out. But the other work, the OPO, architecture, um, <clears throat> the understanding self-organization, this is all part of a large, larger project I've been working on for years to really create the structures that we can put in education in organizations. So people just get jobs 
and they're in these structures, just like you're using Facebook, and the whole way of imagining organizational life is transformed because of it, right? So that's the third act. The third act is that, you know, it's hard for us, harder for me than people like you who have gone through the school of hard knocks. Well, we all do because education is so structured and there's so many tiers and bureaucracies and stuff. It's hard for us to imagine newly this, these things. But if we have structures, if we have models, if we have templates for new ways of organizational life, then young people just going into those organizations under those conditions will understand that this is the reality. It's a new reality. It'll just be conventional. Mm -hmm. So that's the larger project. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> can you like can you specify like who like like what, how how does that actually kind of sh show up? Are, are you like working with people? Like are you consulting? With oh organizations? yeah, I have. Are you? So I have eight tech companies, a network of eight tech companies all around the world that are now restructuring themselves to OPO. And I work with a company called Triaxium 9. I help them launch their website. They are an OPO, and they're in the business now of helping technical companies open up their OPOs. Mm -hmm. And I have this uh, website that I think is, was launched last night very quietly um, called App Associates International, which is a network um, of people pra practicing OPO. And it's a learning community, and it has some uh, courseware that's going to be coming out on it. <clears throat> and I have some um, very large clients in Europe right now um, which are interested in... Okay, so the OPO, it appeals intuitively to small companies and agile companies. And the need that they have is that they are allergic to hierarchies but they would like to get larger and they, they, they lack, they need more structure. So they're looking at the OPO. And in Europe, I have um, working with, um, I'm going to set up the uh, Center for Leadership Practice in Amsterdam and the Center for Transformative Leadership in Norway in Trondheim as an OPO. And I have several contacts, which are large centralized companies that are looking to use some of the applications to kind of decentralize and transform their, their companies. So that's what I, got, I have going right now. So it's interesting. It sounds like a form of social software, which is, like, which is how Holacracy, Brian Robertson sometimes talks about Holacracy. It's like you also uh, use the word template for it. And as somebody who does web design, uh, you know, I use templates. Right. Okay. And templates give you a starting place. They kind of give you, uh, you know, the, like something that looks good enough, you know, if you were just to put it in place by itself, you know, that's usable, that basically, you know, is uh, functional. Um, but you actually have to infuse it with like life. You have to put your imagination into it. You have to become creative with it to actually right. customize it for the specific situation, the client, the purpose, etc. Right. Uh, and it's interesting, I think, that uh, this kind of, it's like a breed of social software that yeah. is uh, being developed and um, explored and, like, you know, released, as it were, right? Correct. 
Um, and it becomes possible then to replicate it. You know, it becomes a kind of, takes on a life of its own or carries a life of, uh, of its own, depending on how it's actually kind of released, right? I mean, depending on, you know, exactly. the licensing and all of that. So, you know, there are waves of people trying to do this social software um, kind of stuff. And I think the exploration doesn't start with someone or end with someone. But I like to make a distinction just to give you a flavor of what, you know, what's the distinction in what we're offering versus some of these others. And um, you, there's always a question, how does OPO different than holacracy? And there's two, there's three main ways. And one way is that this notion of template. Holacracy is a constitutionally driven structure. Right, so Brian Roberts has the whole constitution for holacracy all worked out, and we you and you adopt it kind of en masse, right? So you have companies like Zappos saying, "Take it or leave it. This is what we're doing." OPO is a participatory practice that invites um, the evolution of all the structures over time, even from the beginning. But companies aren't. Uh, and some companies like Google inside their divisions and a lot of tech companies are doing really cool experiments to develop their own structures. But many companies don't have the luxury to just kind of make it up from scratch, right? So with the OPO is a template saying we've done six years of research, we have academics, a lot of uh, rigorous academic work behind us, we've done our practice, we've done our experiments and group process. So we've come up with some templates to get you started, right? Because so, you don't, maybe don't have the luxury to do all this experimenting yourself and, and learn from the ground up. So we have five years of research to get you to square one, but it's just a template and it doesn't come, it comes with a... Uh, uh, con it does, it's not a constitutional driven thing. It com comes with an uh, application for governance that evolves during the process of setting itself up. So there's no, there, it's, 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 it's participatory from the beginning. There's no buy in, it's all build up, no buy in, right? So, and so the another term we use for our governance is when you set up your OPO, it's, we, you're setting up a starting position, right? It's just a starting position. We're going to start somewhere. And the governance is, we say, it stays crisp, C-R-I-S-P. It continually regenerates its own starting position. So this is part of the way agile companies have to think. They, every day is a new day because so much change has happened in 24 hours. We have to continuously see where we're at. And the truth is, in big companies... That amount of change is happening also, but they can't see it. They can't see it because they have a constitutional governance. They have strategic plans that are six to eight months to nine months to five years ahead of time. So their static structures don't, um, aren't able to evolve with the reality. And then the third way we're much different than anything out there is we don't uh, establish roles. And higher and holacracy is all about everybody has like this whole very specific detail of roles. You know, you leave your self behind and you adopt these roles. And um, we're more like the agile community where we have self-organizing teams that they self-organize their roles 
according to the conditions that they face at any given time. So there's some very specific ways in which we're naming what we're offering. Hmm. Listening to you and just kind of being able to uh, sink into my own awareness and presence allowed me to have a different experience of, uh, of the text than when I simply read it and you know was more engaged in taking notes and scribbling my you know my thoughts and trying to think of the questions I might ask you and, and so on and what occurred for me uh, as I was listening is that I started feeling into uh, the a, a source of pain <laughs> which I think that uh, this thinking, uh, this idea of an open participatory organization is addressing. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, that pain has to do with this, our whole world of work and money and making a living and survival and how that interconnects with our relations to each other. Because we need to be in, we need each other, as you said in your piece, to do all those things, you know, to exist, to be, to, to be happy ultimately. Uh, but uh, we're also very problematic for each other. And the systems that we've created, you know, to, uh, to get things done, to work together, and to interrelate and kind of meet our needs are so problematic. And for me personally, I, rem I remembered listening to you that I have gone my whole adult life avoiding organizations, avoiding right. work, uh, avoiding that whole world and that whole cluster of bullshit, <laughs> which is how I experience it, um, uh, because, because it's so painful and, and because uh, it's such a prison. Mm -hmm. And so what I feel uh, listening to your piece and kind of getting and beginning to grok the ideas is that... And, and this is also what I'm working on. Like the conclusion I came to, like from through you know two decades of that, was well, the only way out of it is to make a different kind of organization. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can't avoid being related to other people. You can't avoid working with other people to you know to meet your own needs. Mm -hmm. uh, and once I identified what my own real needs were, then I felt I could begin to think about what an organization would be that would help me meet my needs. And one of the aspects of it is that it has to meet everybody's needs. Mm -hmm. uh, and if our collective needs and our individual needs are not being met by our organizations, uh, then we're really in a pickle. Like, we really got to do something about it. Uh, mm -hmm. And there's, I think, an urgency and an importance to engaging these kinds of ideas. And so where I really wanted to go was where the pain would, would lead me you know, which is that it's still very hard, I think, to, to do this. Uh, but it's, it's hard, but it's also incredibly, like, enticing because it gives the taste of the possibility of some sense of freedom. Well, well maybe the pain comes from here. You know, like, there's two sides of the coin. There's people who've gone on and gone into organizations. And... Um, five years ago, when I left my career of 33 years to look at some of this, I, re re I bought the current 
edition of Peter Sange's book, The Fifth Discipline. And I hadn't been reading about, you know, new, I, I was interested in what new organization, new management, you know, what, what was newly being minted out there. And the book wasn't very different, but he had a new preface, and it said that, um, had a quote that said, our organizations are destroying us, right? But the quote was from the man who invented total quality management. And this was like, it blew my mind, right? So this was a very interesting thing. So on the one hand, people who have been involved in regular organizations, they get destroyed. But I think the pain comes in people who have seen that and have opted out there's a real pain of not being able to do, to organize with people and do things and make a difference and, and create visions and stuff. That, you know, so you kind of get marginalized when you opt out too. And I think, so you have talent and you're marginalized because it's been very hard for those talents to get together to make a difference, right? To have sustainable, you know, uh, economically viable investment to get ahead to to um, jumpstart some of these dreams, and I think that's where the pain comes on the other side. So it's like you think you get destroyed, or you're not destroyed, but you're suffering this lack of opportunity, right? So you know, how do we get things done, and how do we like enjoy that? Uh, that autonomy and community at the same time uh, that, you know, that's the big question. Uh, and, you know, for a lot of the people that I know uh, in my particular social networks, uh, I don't think that, uh, that we've really answered it or, you know, even really like focused on how to address it. Uh, and I think that part of the reason for that is that there, there's something underlying, something underlying an organization or something underlying a social network. And that's who owns the social network. That's how is the social network itself constructed. Uh, how does the social network operate upon us even as we, op even, even as we operate within, within it? And so... You know, there, there's often this sense, this feeling that uh, that your participation is feeding something that is not ultimately doesn't ultimately care about you, uh, has its own ends. And so, the question for me is, how can we participate and organize in a way that changes that underlying dynamic of of ownership and power, uh, so that we truly do feel free. You know, we do truly, truly do feel it like creative participants in what's going on. Yeah, so one of the problems in the in the difficulty in extricating yourself from this kind of pain is part of your language is in the new paradigm when you speak about the freedom and your social networks and part of it is bought into the old paradigm okay so for example the old paradigm makes you think that you're inside a system 
that is controlled by somebody. And so you feel like you can't act or you suffer that someone's manipulating a system that you're inside of. Okay? So I like to, I do a presentation where, you know, there's a thing going around where you see the big fish is going to eat the little fish, right? A little fish, the school of little fish, the big fish going to come. And then all of a sudden, the next slide, all the little fish are arranged so they look like a big fish and they're going to eat the big fish, right? Are you familiar with that one? No. But, but can, can you imagine, imagine it? it? Yeah. Right. And I said, I said, in the, like this, somebody's giving this presentation, and I said, there's only one problem with your presentation. And she said, what? I said, there's no big fish. All big fish are is a bunch of little fish arranged as big fish. There are no big fish. So you buy into, so you're paralyzed because you buy into the fact that there's a system that isn't it. You've said it three times, you know, we can do the tape. You said it, it has power. There is no it. You see, so you have to act, you have to already uh, betrust the distributed nature of agency. Because if you go into their language, you're paralyzed. It doesn't exist. There is no it. There is no it. The big it's are just a bunch of people organized. The way we organize, that's all it is. There's no it. So you really have to, this is the challenge of the paradigm. There I, is no I, 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 I hear you. Uh, and, I, you know, at, at the same time, I don't necessarily mean to say, I think, you know, that there's a monolithic entity that controls things. Like, whether that is a corporation or a, a new world order or, or anything like that. I mean, it's more the patterns and the dynamics that have kind of built up, but that are concretized in specific organizations with uh, specific, I think, um, incentives and, and goals and, and ways that they operate and what, you know, what they're actually doing, what they're actually trying right. to do. Every uh, single one of those incentives and goals has to be interpreted by someone who buys into them. There's no getting around it. There's just people responding locally in their day-to-day -day interactions to everyone else. And that produces patterns that then we reify as an it. And then, because we feel completely incapacitated, we just keep reproducing it because we, there's no all, all alternative. The, uh, trust me on this. This is the <laughs> paradigm shift that has to happen. Well, even if there's not an it, let's say we're just going to put the, the sense of an it in quotes, the sense that we're relating to something. The okay. virtual big fish. The, vir the virtual big fish. The, the it's a construct in our minds. Right. It's a construct, but constructs can be effective. That we are, the, yeah, it's a causally effective illusion. That's what Roy Bashkar would cause, call it. Okay, so... Um, so don't so act the, against still, it. The, but there's still the question of, of how it's actually organized and what it's doing. I mean, it, because... There, it, it doesn't organize... <laughs> That's the whole point. People just act with each other and they organize sometimes and don't. And well, let me, uh, let's get, all right, here it, we go. Let's, right. we're talking, let's say we're talking about an organization, right? I mean, the organ, the, a, a specific organization, a company, okay. a nonprofit, a okay, government. Let's uh, talk about the landscape design build company that I, I was the COO for 30 years. Okay, let's talk about it. So what, what did your organization do? 
okay, we built very, very expensive landscapes for rich and famous people. Okay. I thought, I thought of it as a form of Robin Hood. We mm-hmm. took from the rich and gave to the poor, mm-hmm. people that worked for us. Okay, so I mean, the, you you performed some work. Um, there's a maybe you know there's a, a sense of judgment around that right there, right? Because you're talking about Robin Hood, so you're engaging in this kind of economic retributive type of justice, right? Or you're framing it in that particular way, right? But uh, that could be that action, that particular activity, your your work could be framed in a number of different ways, but it has some uh, meaning in the world. There is intentionality in our organizations, and there is intentionality in, in the people our... in our organizations. Right, the people in our organizations have intentionality. Right, and so what that intentionality is matters, uh, and so reflecting on that, like looking at that, and evaluating it. Uh, that's a term you use, I think, in your mm-hmm. other uh, paper, like, is a really crucial act uh, because it's what, I think, helps us define how we want to interact, how we want to participate in all these local-specific ways. Uh, and so we have to construct, construct some sense of the it, some sense of what the system no, no, is doing. Slow down. You have to do that. I, I don't seem to have that problem. <laughs> okay, well, let's just say I, maybe I don't have to do it, uh, but maybe I do it. Like, maybe it's done. Uh, and so I'll give it like a concrete example. Why would I want let's to work with... Let's get around. Okay, let me get to help. What is the need that making it an it satisfies for you? How's that? We don't have to, but when we do, it seems like it satisfies a need. Well, that's interesting. Um, what, so if there's an it there, then I guess it's something that you can kind of relate to objectively. Uh, I, think, I guess it's something that I could differentiate uh, from. Uh, I think it's something that I can... Blame. Blame. Sure. And what does blaming do if, if I want to go down that route? Uh, I, probably, I guess it gives me a sense of righteousness. <laughs> it gives me a... But, you know, this is exactly how the notion of an organization as an it came into existence legally and was promoted and branded by corporations because when you think of a corporation as an it the leaders of it no longer are liable publicly liable for what the corporation does so this is what i'm saying you have bought into the discourse is playing into the hands of the dominant discourse this is the depth of the problem, but if we can address it at this level, we can get out of the problem. The notion of the corporation as an it was established in the dominant discourse to rid the liability, limited liability, to place the blame on the it and to release the blame of the actual people making decisions in their everyday interaction 
inside the corporation. This is the language of the dominant discourse. They figured it out. They passed it through legality. They teach it in management school. And now in our heads, we think there's an it. And there is no it. So your paper, though, is about an open, particip open participatory organizations. So right. organizations are an it. I mean, dram grammatically, at least. Okay. Uh, so how would you then articulate what an organization is if it's not an it that you could blame and, you know, basically separate yourself from as a, as a person? Right. An organization is a pattern of people organizing together. And in the first paper, I say, well, why do people organize? In the first paper, I say, this is why people organize. Very natural. We organize to offload, to, to distribute energy load. Okay. So if I need to move a couch, I organize with you to move the couch, right? If w mathematicians or, or software engineers organize to solve cognitive problems. So we, we organize to distribute energy load, whether it's physical. We organize to distribute cognitive energy load. And we organize to, to distribute psychic energy load. So we have groups, fun groups, social clubs, play is a psychic energy too. So we have sports, right? So this is why people organize. We organize for the same reason any organism organizes, to distribute energy load. So, th so this is my approach. to. So that's what an organization is. It's a temporal pattern of distributing energy load. For what? For needs or wants or desires. Now, where's the, com where's the complexity come in? That when we organize, let's say you and I are organizing to move the couch, we have asymmetrical needs, right? And we have asymmetrical skills. So let's say I really want the couch moved, right? But you're stronger. You see, we have like an asymmetrical thing, right? So, you know, you have a little more power than me because you have more skill and less need. And we have to negotiate this, right? So this is a natural human capacity. And in this natural human negotiations of intentions and needs, then there's power relationships happen, but they continuously renegotiate each other. It's what people do. In the workplace, as we're renegotiating these, our identities and our roles will fall out. So finally it's like, okay, okay, I'm going to give you 50% more, so you agree to take the role of the the heavier side of the couch, and I do that. And so this is the day-to-day -day interaction that is, that is happening in myriad, myriad, many, many, many ways all the time. And some of these patterns are stable, so we can look at it and point to it and say that's an it, an organization. Over time, the day-to-day -day reality in the workplace is not very stable at all. There's all kinds of things going on. So... That's one thing. That's what I call an organization. Now, a participatory organization has all these qualities of opt-in, opt-out. If I'm participating in the moment, I'm in the organization. If I'm not, I'm not. There's, it doesn't, the organization doesn't exist outside of the local participation. So it's an ecology, constant participating ecology of, of all things. So this... this, well, this let, me, let me ask about that, that, that specifically, because that was one of the questions that I had uh, 
in my first reading, and it had to do with uh, your distinction between commitment and consistency and opting opting in versus opting out. Uh, mm-hmm. Opting in, opting out being a much I, I, you know, easier thing to do, right? We are used to doing that with email newsletters and, you know, with subscription mm-hmm. services and, and things like that. Uh, then I thought about one of the, you know, most profound organizations that I'm a part of, and that's my marriage uh, and my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've kind of, I opted into that, right? Like we both opted in. Um, but <laughs> it also, I can't just opt out. I mean, I can, of course. Uh, but uh, I wouldn't want to, uh, and 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 I wouldn't want to really even define it in in those terms as if as if it were that easy, that simple. Because there there are ethical consequences to that, right? We brought these little beings into the world, our daughters, uh, for one. Uh, that being one of the you know, most profound ethical consequences, and so. Like one of the places where I felt a tension uh, with mm-hmm. this vision that you've laid laid out is that um, I, I think that there are contexts uh, where commitment is important and where commitment should override uh, just kind of the personal almost whim that might lead me to to mm-hmm. uh, opt out of a particular relationship or project or um, you know, shared intention. Uh, so I, I wonder how you might address that that tension, uh, or how I might address that tension. Well, I don't have it. You know, the tension's not arising in me. So. Yeah, I know. That's I'd, have to, I'd have to project. You know, you're talking to someone who's been with the same person for 24 years and never gotten married. Yeah. We're still on an opt-in out, opt-out kind of relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's how. I, I mean, I've configured it. You know, that's a we, my wife and I have configured it. You know, uh, and, but that's not, that was voluntary. You know, that's something that we chose to do and we choose to do and we continue to choose to do and that, right. you know, is a value. And I, 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 the reason that I, I, it stood out for me, I think, in reading your paper was because, uh, I think that some things like require, like require commitment, uh, require one to like fulfill their word, you know, to fulfill their intention. Right. Uh, and and do you think that 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 commitment is a done deal the day you get married? Or you think it happens? Not, no, not at all. It's not continuous participation every day. Yeah, I mean, let's take another example. Let's so say. So it, it, yeah, I mean, the truth is, long-term commitment is not something that's established and then it's a done deal. It actually is requires continuous participation every single day. Right. But that that requires like some relationship to like to your to time, to memory, to language because You've articulated something like you've articulated a relationship. You you may or may not. Let me, let's take that. I mean, you may or may not have words for it exactly, you know. But there is some narrative around it. Like there's some story that you're, you know, telling right. or living into. Yeah. So this is the real reason why we have reified versions of things of of participation like marriage because it reduces the anxiety. 
But the reality, it reduces the anxiety that we actually live in an uncertain and unpredictable world. But the reality is you are actually living in an unpredictable and uncertain world and you're making that commitment day after day after day after day after day. Well, but th doesn't that require that you, that you live that story that you're telling? So in other words, like, let, let's, let, me, let me give another example, because like, the marriage is, very, is particular to, to me, but I think you know, a lot of people I know are not married, actually, and you know, that it's sort of like in my particular networks, you know, a kind of anachronism, almost. Um, but let's say you go on a 10-day meditation retreat. Mm -hmm. So you've started out with this commitment. You're, you've uh, engaged this narrative that you're going to sit for 10 hours a day for 10 days, and you're going to do it. You make a promise you know, to yourself. Perhaps you, you know, sign some kind of declaration of intent or whatever it is. So you have to reanimate re that narrative every day. Whenever the bell rings at yeah. 4 in the morning. Uh, and there may be times, and there, in my experience, are times when you really don't want to be there. Right. <laughs> and, and, uh, and so your overwhelming impulse in that moment is to contravene the story, the commitment, the narrative, the promise that you've made, but you, and you may leave. And there, you, there, it may come to a point, you're, it may, the feeling, the impulse may become so overwhelming that you begin creating another counter story that allows you mm -hmm. to kind of step out of that commitment. But there's something valuable about staying in the commitment. Right, right? but let's evaluate what keeps you in the commitment. What keeps you staying is not that you valued leaving more, is because you valued staying more. That's just the truth of it. Now, your way of associating with the value of staying more might be, oh, but I promised, oh, but I promised. But the reality is there's no way you would stay if you valued leaving more. It doesn't... It doesn't make sense unless, you know, unless somebody chains you down or something. And so that gets back to the question of what the, the purpose of it is. And I'm not saying by that that it has an objective purpose because we impart purpose into the it's, right? Collectively, we impart it. Dis distribute it distributively, you know, we, we impart it. But once we impart it, then it sort of has it. In, in your other paper, you talk about how there's a sort of an effect objectivity to affectivity how if if you walk into a room for example where people are having a fight or where they were just having a sexual encounter you could even if they stop and you don't see it right, uh, right. with your eyes you can feel it right? right so there's this kind of network effect uh that you know coming out of our the intentions that we impart into our organizations right and that becomes something that sustains us right if i go into something with a deep okay. sense of commitment it has mm -hmm. this kind of, and, and, I, and I also articulate my stories around it. If I intentionally, you know, work that story, then that kind of travels through time, right? That, like, that affects me in the future. It's not that the future just kind of arises out of nowhere and that I, you know, suddenly can value. No, no, uh, no. If you, if you had a story that traveled through time, then you had a stroke and you had amnesia, that story wouldn't catch up to you in the future. You have to reproduce that over and over and over again. And if you watch carefully, 
Three months down the line, you might say, oh, that's that story I committed to X number of years ago. But if you had taken a diary, it would actually be a different story. It's like playing, you know, what's that game we play when you tell one? It's actually changed. There's neuroscientific evidence that you think it's the same story, but it's slowly adapted to your changing values over time. So you, pe- you see people constantly saying, I'm going to marry you, and they're very clear on their reasons, and very clear that if this ever happened, I don't want to get married. And I consult people all the time. I have to say, you know, okay, but it's my experience that the reasons why you want to stay married, they will also change. They will follow your journey as you go along. Values are not static in time. They may give you the impression because they're still your values. But if you really track them, they change every two seconds or every five minutes. I mean, this is part of meditation. I really, really want to be here. I don't want to be here. I really, really want to be here. Oh, this is the most beautiful thing in the world. What the fuck am I doing? No, the teacher's, in, you know, the teacher's actually a psychopath. and he's made, You know, if you really see, that's what happens. It changes every two minutes. And you're constantly negotiating your values. This is, this is, so the OPL is trying to say, let's talk about what actually happens. What is actually happening? And build our practice from there, based upon not what management science says, you know, some, we're we're a cybernetic system, there's an, you know, no, let's work with what is actually the case. So maybe the question is, is like, why does it matter? Like, and why does it matter now? And I think that for me, it matters to make these kinds of distinctions. I think people have this intuition. But without making these distinctions, like these traps we might fall into with our language and fictionalizing the suprasystem, then we are in danger of creating a future we actually don't want to see, right? So there are two trajectories going into the future now. One trajectory, and I think you um, talked about this, is a little bit of fear and pain, which I share with you. And one trajectory is that there's a large centralized platform owned by the few that controls how we can connect, right? And sets the terms of production, right? So, for example, Amazon Turk is a little bit like that, right? So they put, they want, they want things to be done. They throw it out there and all these starving uh, people with no jobs, they bid they bid the you know they bid to the lowest price to get the luxury of having the job from this computer that this computer sends out for them right so this is this is one kind of game that is being made possible by the internet that people will actually be needed to tie into this centralized platform in order to make the contacts they need to survive. 
The other game is that the centralized platform is the platform that enables us to connect is distributed. And it only exists not as a thing, but only through participation. So only if people put on their computer, add that processing space to the platform, will it exist. So this is that paradigm that we want to build structures that are very, very important that only exist if we participate on it. So, for example, when you have something like a centralized bank, then the centralized bank is the only is a central authority that can guarantee or authorize the value of currency, right? But Bitcoin depends upon every single person in the blockchain to say yes. So it's this kind of systems and organizations that should only be able to exist by the continual participation of people who are always participating in it. I think that's, I'm glad you went there because I think that's part of what I was getting at, albeit awkwardly, uh, asking about it and, you know, having this sense that it has this, you know, these intentions or these designs. Uh, and it's particularly with the platform idea. Uh, like, for example, like a, a social network like Facebook, what, you know, what's so wonderful about it is that we can connect to each other on it. Uh, and what I find so troubling about it is that I can feel it operating on me. You know, even as I'm, even as we're operating, connecting, sharing, commenting, liking, and so forth on it, I feel that it's operating on me. Yeah, but you see, this is this is exactly the move that's problematic. I feel myself changing my own being. You are doing this. You are part, and and that may be good and that may be bad. Well, let me be specific. I mean. I mean, we know that it's the network is set up in, according to certain parameters. It, like what you see right. uh, is determined algorithmically, and that and there's this kind of AI that's being developed. Right. That I think it's whose purpose one is to, of course, you know, enable us to connect, enable us to see relevant content, but also has this purpose to show us the ads in the most natural possible way, so that we, you right. know, basically to extract value uh, out of out of us and to monopolize our attention as much as Correct. possible. And right now that aligns with your values because no. you're participating. It has to. <laughs> if it didn't align with your values but and you wanted to go off grid and choose something else, you would. A align suggests that it's too, it's, it's too easy and comfortable. I mean, it, it's a tension, obviously. It's a, it's a conflict. You know, it's something that yes. I feel conflicted we, about. We, Exactly. We have conflicted values that are constantly being negotiated. Exactly. They're in you. Right. But you, all right. But you just yeah. described these two scenarios. You know, one is where there's a centralized type of uh, system that controls the parameters of our participation. The other where uh, that is distributed. And I think that that's the, you know, what the, the crux of the issue is that there is the tendency towards centralization, towards uh, an extractive uh, type of logic that right. is um, underlying and basically powering our social networks. 
And so, you know, we participate in that and we don't necessarily think about those underlying logics. I mean, we just kind of let them operate on us uh, and, you know, influence uh, the nature of our relationships, I think, pre-reflectively. And you're suggesting another possibility. So that's what I'm trying. I think that's what I'm trying to get to. I'm suggesting that we can participate with the platform that is Facebook to teach a different type of participation. And yes, there's, there's multiple value and there's a bootstrapping thing. But if we don't make the distinction and we keep blaming the it and not continuously negotiating our own values, we'll never get there. Because the it is just too big. You see, part of the old structure happens because people just blame the boss. And, you know, they can get their paycheck. There's a tit for tat happening in organizations too, right? So the open participation doesn't make everything nice. It means you have to show up and take responsibility for those patterns that you are reenacting and for the continual negotiation of values that happens all the time every day. And those negotiations make a difference. And that's how change happens. The rest is just fiction, stories. So is it enough to opt in for that kind of change or do we need to commit to it? (laughs) Well, you can't help. If it's in you, you can't help yourself. So... (laughs) Well, yeah, I think sometimes you have to opt in and opt out, right? Because it, it can be exhausting. And, and that itself is part of the constant, constant play. I respect commitments when they're made by individuals out of their own values, right? In the piece, the commitment was like social pressure to commit to the organization and not to actually make explicit the way your values. Today, actually, I don't feel like, you know, and to watch that you're constantly negotiating it. That it's not an it, it's a continuous negotiation of values in real time across many, many people. Hmm. It seems like like one of the conversations that could come out of this paper uh, is... The conversation that looks at the relationship between our values, our kind of real lived actual right now values and our practices, what we're actually doing, how we're actually participating, what we're actually participating in, what are the unstated or stated intentions of, of, you know, those that, you know, those occasions of participation. Uh, And I I don't know exactly, you know, how, how... how to do that other than to other than just to kind of bring it forth you know as being one of the way one of the one of the ways that we are conflicted i think is that we often find ourselves participating in ways that don't reflect our actual felt values exactly so that's what i would call an opo move that the conversation that takes place at that level of re- relevancy ultimately is more valuable than the conversation that takes place at the level of it 
And that's in what we would call an OPO move. We want to talk about what is the actually happening in our lived experiences. So that was perfect. That was an OPO move. Cool. <laughs> my uh, <laughs> touchdown dance. <laughs> yeah. Wait. This is this is exactly the grounding aspect of OPO work. And it seems like it's irrelevant to the it because the it seems so much bigger. But all the transformation is going to happen in those kinds of conversations hmm. that I think you're really good at facilitating. And just leave the it out of the room. <laughs> Infinite Conversations is a project of A Theory of Everybody, a platform for social poetics and planetary thought. In addition to this podcast and podcast network, we're also working on a number of other projects, including an online journal of consciousness and culture called Metapsychosis, an unusually hardcore book club called Lit Geeks, and a discussion hub tying these all together at infiniteconversations.com, where you can join the conversation. We offer all this freely in the spirit of the gift. And you can learn more and support our work at theoryofeverybody.com. Once again, this is Marco V. Morelli. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.